It's good to be with you. If you are a guest here today, it's a long time since you've been here. We welcome you. We hope that it's been a blessing so far to you. Thank you to Alex and the band for um, leading us to the point where we're ready to be fed. And, and so now we focus on the thing that's most important, a time of corporate time in the Word. We've been going through a continued study, and it's been a while since we have been in it. Spiritual warfare, walking the hard road. Begin to close out our summertime of student life camp and our student ministry led by Jason Sandroff and our follow-up student-led services, which was such a blessing. A backyard BBS in a number of places and ladies' ministries and travel for many of us, me and my family as well, many of you. And so we're getting ready to wrap that up. I hope you had, hope you had a time, good time getting away. And it's really wonderful, of course, to have Eli and Jess, Josiah and Keja and Oliver and Theodore all back with us, our missionaries to Brazil. They're back with us for about six months. It's hard to believe that we get to have them for that long. We've missed them, and they've been in training for a good bit of time, and so it's, we're thrilled to have them back here. And you'll hear from him a number of times, of course, I think, over the course of time that they're here, so it'll be a blessing. So we're getting ready to start back up, of course, with all the fun ministries that occur in the fall and the winter. The journey small groups are going to start up in homes, bistro, uh, fellowship dinner, Awana, led by Chris and Dina Bryant, and maybe participate and some lead some of those ministries. But just a, week, a few weeks before all of that I just mentioned, we, we started a new section of 2 Corinthians. It has to do with um, spiritual warfare. And we saw in the subsequent weeks a thread of suffering in it. And we're going to take some time, because it's been so long, really since June the 13th, I think, as I looked back, since we've actually been in this book, we're going to spend some time in review. And so if you've been with us all through this study, it's going to be a good reminder of some of the character traits that we need to emulate as we see the Apostle Paul showed them to us through his writing, and if you're new, you're not going to feel out of the loop. Uh, this time, this morning, should catch you up to where we've been and where we're going to go. So turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians 11. In this new section, uh, the Apostle Paul was forced to begin to draw some attention to things that he doesn't want to draw attention to. As we've gone through 1 Corinthians, of course, as Paul uh, addressed some of the difficulties in the church and brought them to uh, his plan of a healthy church and things that need to go on there to fix some things. He gets to 2 Corinthians, he really begins to open up and show the church's heart, but there's that undercurrent of rebellion inside the church. There's those who are false teachers. And Paul gets to the point in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians where he's just done dealing with them on the periphery and he's just going to come straight to them and, and deal with the difficulties. And so he's going to have to draw some attention to some things that he doesn't want to draw attention to. But he's been put in a position that in spite of the work that he's put in, in spite of the love that he's shown the church, in spite of uh, all the time that he's been there, some have been taken captive by false teachers. And, and they've claimed preeminence in the church. They've denigrated Paul, of course, in his ministry. And have begun to replace some of the solid teaching and the doctrine that Paul has brought to the church over 18 months of physically pastoring them. And then later... Of course, a total of four letters written, two which we have preserved here, and several visits both by he and, and by Titus. So, in spite of all of that, there's some difficulty now that those, some in the church are giving ear to false teachers. And so, they came in in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, look there in your copy of God's Word, and preached, it says, another Jesus whom we have not preached, and a different spirit which you have not received, and a different gospel which you've not accepted. That's a pretty serious thing. We looked at those in depth in the past, those things that probably were indicative of this type of thing. It's not different, really, than it is today in the church. We still have the same things going on. But here, some of the church had accepted those things, and they had begun to adjust their thinking, and they were deceived. 
and Paul uses the passage that says, like Eve was deceived in the garden, into thinking that now they have the whole truth. That's how deception works. When you go and you hear false doctrine, you're thinking, oh, well, I didn't know that before. Now I really know what's going on. That's always the case. And so Paul makes it clear that the guys they're listening to are, he says, look at verse 13, false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So he's not pulling any punches now. He's making it clear, uh, as I told you before, you know, these guys who are probably doing this type of thing are sitting on the front row of the church, and Paul is making, uh, have these letter read. That's probably going to be pretty embarrassing for these guys sitting there, because they know exactly who he's talking about. They're not the real deal, and they're like every other babbler of error today, hailed as a messenger of God and Christ by largely, I think, an unregenerate and perhaps certainly undiscerning Christianity. And if you just come along and you say you're from God and you say from Christ, you could say anything, and as long as you have the right look and create the right atmosphere, people will follow you. But we saw in our study that not only are they false apostles and deceitful workers disguised as those sent by Jesus, they learned how to disguise themselves from none other than Satan himself. Look at verse 14. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And then Paul indicates he isn't speaking hypothetically. Verse 15, he says, therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And we saw why Satan's servants are in the church in disguise back when we studied through this. And it's really to trick the church, to deceive the church, uh, to get the church off course, to take advantage of the church. And we saw that there was so much ugliness, even at this early point in the, in the church, when it's first being established, that it doesn't surprise us that we see it today, too, in churches led by false teachers. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.20, of course, uh, and there, those churches today are all filled by people just like in the church in Corinth. Paul says, for you tolerate it, verse 20, if anyone, takes an, if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. And we went through all that, but the, the bottom line was they don't really know they've been enslaved. They're listening to the falseness. They've lost their freedom in Christ, and now they're subservient, that's what that means, to the whole false system of beliefs taken captive. And he uses some interesting words. He says they devour you, and this really seems to have to do with money. And this is a, a most recent topic, of course, that they're berating Paul about, that um, you know, he's just in it for the money, he's doing things for the money, or he won't take any money from them, and so that he must not love them. And so there's a whole money thing going on there. And, of course, false teachers don't mind taking money. And if there's anything true about a false teacher, they get their hands on all the money that they can. And then it says takes advantage of you, and literally, that has to do with, a, that's the word for fishnet. You're getting caught, if you will, like a fish in a net, fooled and caught, because they were gullible, and because they had not, uh, no discernment, which comes from reading and understanding the Word of God. And then it says, as anyone exalts himself, so false teachers always want to make themselves look important. Anyone hits you in the face, it says, which is a sign of severe uh, lack of respect and condescension. This is always the case in, in, with a false teacher. People mean nothing to them, just a means to an end. They don't love people like a faithful under-shepherd does. They don't give themselves away for people. They, they don't give up anything. They just take people for all they can get, and they suck them dry for their own benefit. And because the people are gullible, they enslave them to that system. And you wonder, as you look at false teaching, even modern false teaching, there's a huge crowd there listening to false teaching. They've been enslaved. They don't realize they've been enslaved, but they've just been taken in now, and they're subservient to all of this system. And then the last part of verse 15 whose end will be, it says, according to their means. And, and we saw really a stern warning to false teachers, very stern as we looked at a number of them 
as we went through that passage, everyone who teaches the word of God, everyone who leads the church, which is the Christ's body, is held to a very strict standard. And, and they're going to be judged according to their deeds. And they're going to be marked out for judgment based on a life of deception and lawlessness. And God is pretty serious about that, uh, about error and corrupting the truth. He says, for those who want to teach in the church, be not many teachers, for those is a greater condemnation. So there's a certain, a certain accountability and a certain uh, motivation for those who teach the church to, to recognize that they're accountable to the truth and to do it correctly. And all the way through the word, we see that throughout all the ages, since he first communicated to the Jewish people, in fact, Jesus reiterates that and reiterates God's attitude in Mark 9.42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it'd be better for him if, mark this, very harsh, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. That's how serious it is. A flippant use of the word of God, a flippant approach to the word of God, a flippant teaching style, a disregard for what the word of God says so you can say what you want to say, a manipulating of it, a hucksterism, all that kinds of things that the Bible talks about. These are serious things and God keeps track of that. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an important point that Paul is making. God's serious about those who hurt believers. He's serious about those who damage the church. And false teachers fall into that category so they're going to get their day. And then we asked a question. As we went through all of that, and we haven't covered all the stuff that we went through, it would take too long to do that, but we asked this question. So as we see the issue that's going on in the church, and Paul in chapter 10 really begins to show what's going on and take the false teachers as his target, how can we sum up a 2,000-year-old example whose symptoms read like a Stephen Furtick website or sound like Joel Osteen uh, church service or a Beth Moore video series? How, how, do we sum, how do we sum this up so what we need, and what we need to look for? Well, number one, don't be deceived by clever, spiritual-sounding words. It's amazing how hard people will work to sell deception. It's going to sound spiritual. Flattering words, spiritual-sounding words may mask Satan himself. Remember three things, a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Any of those things that depart from the true understanding of Jesus or the work of the Holy Spirit or how the gospel is presented modifying the clear teaching of the Word of God to fit modern society norms. That can be couched in very spiritual-sounding language. Language we understand can mask demonic doctrine. Just because they talk about God and they talk about Christ and they talk about the Gospel and the Spirit and the Bible doesn't make it true. In fact, Satan will always do that because that's the deception, isn't it? Number two, in that same vein, when it comes to doctrinal error, tolerance is not a virtue. This is very common today. It doesn't matter how many people hold that position sincerely. There can never be any tolerance for error, ever, at any time. You don't have to read very far in the scriptures to see that God's opinion of something isn't changed because everybody else thinks a different way. It's not okay to God. He had high expectations for those who claim to represent him, and Christian love is not equated with gullible sentimentality. And three, don't overlook the issue of money. As you're evaluating ministries, this is a big deal. This is the whole discussion, really, as it comes into this issue in Corinth. Just look at lifestyle. And as you think about the modern church, look at personal wealth. Look how it's gained, how it's spent. See what, and this is the peddler of pop religion. See how they manage the money that comes in, how they live. They often display lavish uh, materialism. Religion is big business. Religion is big money because people are gullible. 
And we live in a world today where there are denominations and there are preachers and there are seminaries and schools that deny the scriptures. Representative churches that mouth Marxist slogans today. TV evangelists become millionaires many times over at the expense of people. This is not a time to be fooled by words. It's not a time to be naive about money. It's not a time to be sentimental about tolerance, see. And it's no time to be gullible. And number four, you can protect yourself from all of that very simply, which is, and we encourage you to do this on nearly every Sunday. Open up the Word every single day and read through the Word and go cover to cover every year and just start again. And as you do that and become familiar with the Word of God and the cumulative understanding of who God is and how He works, it's less likely you're going to be fooled by a lot of this stuff. The Holy Spirit will be active in your life, pointing out the actual Scriptures and what they say, and it's easy to point out the error. So as we move through verse 15, and we see that, and we can see it translated really to today, you get to verse 16, and that becomes the transition. Paul's going to have to support himself. He's going to have to draw attention to himself. He hates to do this. But this is where the church has left him. He has to defend himself as a true apostle and, and uh, defend what he has taught them as true, which has been a spiritual warfare for him, which is the overriding topic here from chapter 10. And he, he sets the new section up with an apology, and he, as he indicates the marks of a true apostle. Look at verse 16, if you would. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as, a fool, as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. Now, you can tell right away as Paul gets in here, these false teachers have really been tooting their own horns, and now Paul has to set up this time where he points out that he is a true apostle. So he's going to have to say some things that are going to point in that direction, but he doesn't want to. He's very uncomfortable with all of that. He's, he's fairly comfortable, though, because... Um, if he wants to talk about weaknesses, he's fairly comfortable with that. The church has put him in a place. They've been gullible and listened to false teachers and, and listened to them boast about themselves. And, and chapter 10, verse 12, remember in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, he says they uh, measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. Remember that? So they set up this standard. False teachers set up a standard of what's a true teacher. And then they measure themselves by the standard they set up and then consider themselves superior. So it's, it's really an absurd way to get yourself elevated. But we see it still done today all, all the time. Those who are false always talk to other people who are false. And they, and they try to boost each other up. And they write epilogues and books and all that just kind of boost up the falseness. We still see that, but in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says that's what they did. So they boosted themselves up, declared themselves superior. So Paul has to come in. He's not comfortable pointing out his attributes. He's very comfortable talking about his weaknesses. In fact, he's happy to do that. He's happy to talk about his inabilities. He, he's very comfortable with saying that he's the chief of sinners. He, he doesn't mind saying that he is what he is by the grace of God and that alone He's very, com very comfortable saying in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where he said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Remember that? We studied that? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Paul never wanted to draw attention to himself in order for that to be the medium for people to accept the word of God. He just wanted to disappear, if you will, to show he was flawed and just deliver the word of God and let people believe that for its own sake. Very comfortable saying he's a former blasphemer who persecuted the church, but he really doesn't like talking in a boastful way about his credentials. So we know that when he starts, he's not going to say more than is true. In fact, 2 Corinthians 10, 15 says, and, and really shadows that here, foreshadows, not boasting beyond our measure. That is, in other men's labors, but with a hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. 
And so he says in verse 16, he says, again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as a fool so that I may also boast a little. And, and these next verses seem to be a parenthetical statement. Look at verse 17 there in your copy of God's word. What I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting, since many boast according to the flesh, I'll boast also. And Paul is very sarcastic in verse 19. He says, for you also being wise, tolerate foolishness gladly, he says. And, and Paul, of course, is speaking of the false teachers. What's he mean? Well, you're real, you're real wise, all right. You're, you're duped by, by pretenders. He's telling the church, you, you just were pulled right in. He goes, if you can be fool, if you endure foolishness and endure what I'm going to have to do, not, you're not wise enough to recognize you've been enslaved, devoured, and taken advantage of, and brought to subjection and demeaned. So he says, listen, you're so wise, I'm going to be foolish here, and you can accept me. Now look at verse 20. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. So we're going to move on from there. And he continues the sarcasm. Look at verse 21, if you would. He says, to my shame, I must say that we've been weak by comparison. In other words, Paul says, compared to how they took you in and, and what they, that looked like, I'm pathetic. He goes, I, I'm not going to do anything near so shiny as that. I'm not that clever. And so Paul's okay with being thought of as weak, and, but in any respect, but in whatever respect he says anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I'm just as bold myself. Now, he, he doesn't really start talking about himself until you get to verse 22. He just doesn't seem to be able to get to it. He doesn't want to do it. It's so distasteful that he just keeps talking about other things and he keeps giving disclaimers because he wants not to be understood. And so the question really is begged here, is it possible for Paul to defend himself to the church and also be humble at the same time? Is it possible to do that? And most would say, no. If you're going to brag about yourself, it's not possible to be humble. It's not possible to defend your credentials and be humble at the same time. And many pastors have to go through this over and over across the country, perhaps falsely accused, or they have to do something hard, and there's a group of people that will denigrate his authority to do it or, 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 or his ability or misconstrue what happened because they don't know the whole story, and, and they would say, uh, no, when you start to defend yourself, that just proves that you're wrong or arrogant or both. But the answer really is, in the passage, yes. Paul can point out his credentials and still be humble. And he has to make a reasonable and honest and fair defense. And sometimes people are forced to do that. But it's never a happy occasion, and you never feel good about it. It's not a sin, but Paul says it's just folly. So that's why all these disclaimers are in there. So, though I believe it's instructional to get this tension, this challenge that Paul's dealing with, and it helps us understand what still goes on in the modern church today. It's not an easy challenge. And Paul knew that, but as we're going to see as we get into this defense, starting really in verse 22, it's going to run all the way through chapter 12 and verse 13. He does it. And the remarkable thing that we realize is, and this is what we're going to see as we kind of open up this next section, is the more he gives his apostolic credentials, the more humble you realize he really was. He hadn't said anything about that, and all of a sudden you realize all the things that have gone on in his life, and you realize how humble he really was if you think about how he's addressed the church up until now. Now look at verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So he's finally getting to his defense. And then verse 23 he says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. 
I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often danger of death. Now, as you look at those two verses, you can really see the difference, can't you? In verse 22, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So he's equal to those claims. He has all the, uh, the credentials that have to come with being a Jew, with being a Hebrew, with being an Israelite, and all the things we talked about, about the law and keeping the law and, and being a, a traditional Hebrew in following the pattern that God has set up. So he says, if they're that way, I am too. But then you get to verse 23, and you realize this is really where he's going. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. What does he say? I more so. I far more. He's far superior. So look at verse 23, and we'll get, we'll get into that. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often danger of death. And so he gets to the real point. And the real point here is to show not that he's equal, but that he's superior. And that's been hard to come by. And it's taken us, what, 10 verses to get to the point where he actually starts talking about anything about himself. But he's finally arrived, and he's now willing to give his defense. And it is a defense of his superiority to those who've claimed superiority in the church. And the Corinthians should stop listening to the false teachers, that's the idea, and turn back to Paul because he's superior to them in every way. And he does this, and as you read it, you realize he's maintaining his humility. Because he's not saying what you would suspect someone would say if they wanted somebody to think they were great. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. It just appears to be very hard for Paul to actually ask the question, are they servants of Christ? Because we know they're not. We know that they're, they're servants of Satan and they've disguised themselves as servants of light, right? So when he says, you know, are they diakonos? Are they table waiters for the church? What's the answer? Hardly. We saw they were masquerading, right? They're servants of the evil one. And then he says, I speak as if insane. It's for paraphraneo, that's to be beside oneself from para contrary to and then friend of the mind so i i'm deranged if you want to say they're servants of christ it's not possible they aren't but if you insanely imply that they are he says i more so so even if they were a servant of christ i abound in other words uh, that's the word hyper i i'm i'm over whatever they claim i've worked harder so he says in far more laborers i've spent more time in jail in far more imprisonments. I can't even remember how many times I've been attacked, so that means beaten time without number. He can't even remember how many times he's been beaten. And lots of people want to kill me, so often danger of death. And we looked at all of that and some of the references in the scriptures, and you can get back to that if you want online. And you read that, and that's not what you suspected Paul would be saying, right? I mean, that isn't what people would come up, at if, you know, that's not what re is read in a bio before somebody's getting ready to speak, is it? I've been in far more labor, I work harder, I've been in prison a lot more times, I've been beaten a ton of times, and I'm off in danger of death. And you think, wait, what, you know, is that the mark of apostolic credentials? I mean, if you think about it, and we see this tongue-in-cheek, it's a man who needs to do a reality check on the way he's approaching life. This is a guy who should hear a suggestion about changing his style of ministry. If, every a guy, if ever a guy, and I said this before, needs to read a book on ministry by Joel Osteen, this is the guy, okay? I mean, if ever a guy needs new direction on how to be seeker-friendly and make his approach to ministry less confrontive and talk about sin less and more about how we're all good people uh, and God will bless you with your best life now if you just have faith enough, that's the guy who needs to read that book, okay? Because Paul doesn't seem to be lining up with anything we would think would be successful. Paul's the guy who needs it. 
what we saw in Paul's life, really, I think, helps us realize a number of things. And just in looking what we've looked at so far and what we'll see all the way through chapter 12, this is a picture of Christianity in general throughout all the ages. And the world has known this picture to be true. And it's still true in many parts of the world. Paul's experience as a Christian is true in many, many parts of the world. That's how it is. And number two, suffering for faith is the norm, not the exception. And number three, I think it'll hold out in really stark contrast the difference between the reality of being Jesus' disciple and the absurd falseness of the prosperity gospel and the easy believism that many churches push today. And so he goes on, 2 Corinthians 11, 24, 25. Look there with me, if you would. And this is a review, and if this has pricked any of your uh, curiosity, you can go back and listen to any of these on Spotify and catch up with. I gave you a lot of references. We spent a lot of time in these passages because they are so important. This is the only place. Acts, the book of Acts does not give us uh, blow by blow in any of these things. This is the only place we have this listed. And so... I thought it was remarkable, so we went through it slowly to kind of look and see where all this occurred and what we would know about this. He says, verse 24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. And we went over all this historical context. And, and as we pointed out, the incongruity of all of this, because if, if you're in the situation Paul is in, and you had to defend yourself as a true apostle of Jesus... I said a moment ago, and you wanted to show them you were superior to the false apostles who were misleading the church. You want, to, you want someone to write your bio so it would be impressive. What do you think you would probably ask to have written? All the great things you've accomplished, right? I mean, your broad background, as Paul had one, born into the Gentile world. He knew his way around Greek and Roman culture, very cosmopolitan, so he, he might want to mention that. You know, a Roman citizen, and not everyone was, and so he definitely wants somebody to know that and all the privileges that go with it, and, and that he had an excellent education. I mean, that would be good for the bio. I mean, he was well-educated, extended traveling experience. He's traveled all over the place, knows, knows a lot of important people, so there'd be some name-dropping that you would recognize, and that would be in the bio, right? I mean, if you're trying to make yourself look good, I mean, you want to connect yourself with all the important people around the Greek and Roman culture. He could have said, do you know how many churches I've planted? I mean, that would have been a good thing, right? I mean, people want that in their bio. Um, you know, do you know how well published I am? I mean, when we get all done, I will have written 75% of the New Testament. I mean, that's something you should probably know, right? Acts 19 verse 11 says he could cast out demons, and he didn't have to be there. They just said it in his name, and out they went. I mean, he would definitely say that, right? And you would assume that if a man was going to show his superiority as an apostle, as a teacher, he might start out talking about his education, his experience, his achievements, his accomplishments, all of that. But that's not what he does. He doesn't do any of that. He goes right to, beloved, the most dominant feature of his life as an apostle, which was suffering. That's what he goes to. And I think that's instructional for us, isn't it? And according to Jesus in Matthew 10, and we looked at this passage at length about five weeks ago. Difficulty in ministry and suffering were some of the main evidences that he was a true minister of God, a true apostle. Jesus said specifically that that's what was going to happen. And, and just in general, for, and this is for everyone, beloved, for everyone who has an effective ministry, we should expect 
difficulty to follow right along, shouldn't we not? I mean, if it's not an effective ministry, it's a false ministry, we should expect to see it prosperous. And that's precisely what we see, isn't it? When you see false ministry, they seem to be swimming in money and things. But when you see faithful ministry, many times they struggle. See faithful ministers, many times they're having a difficult time. That is how we should expect it, although we've been conditioned the opposite way. I've said this to a number of, of guys who are in ministry training who've gone out now from us. You know, you don't know what the Lord's going to do in the church where you're a minister. You are an underweighter. And you just do the thing you're supposed to do, and he does the thing he needs to do. And that might mean that there's some thinning out of the ranks. That might mean that there's some difficulty you have to deal with. Whose servant are you? You're not your own servant, see? And so you have this job to do, except we're all conditioned that it has to be a whole different way. And you can buy any number of books on Christian bookstore shelves, how to build your church, five steps to how to, you know, how to grow your church. How to... I'm sorry, I don't, I don't remember any of that in the New Testament. What I see is I see faithful guys doing their thing and God doing his thing. And whatever that is, that's okay. See? And maybe you get beat up a little bit, and maybe pastors get beat up a little bit. Well, hey, how is that any different than anything we've ever seen in the New Testament? And so this is the issue. And, and so Jesus said this is what was going to be for those who were true apostles. Paul says, I'm a true apostle. And then he, what does he start talking about? The very things Jesus said was going to happen. And John 16, 33, you remember this, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. You can have peace in me. Stay close to the master through his word and in prayer. You'll have peace. In the world, you're going to have what? Pressing pressure. That's tribulation. Squeezing pressure. In the world, you're going to have that. But take courage, I've overcome the world. You're going to remind the world of Jesus if you're doing faithful ministry. And you're going to have peace in him as a believer. But what's going to come with the territory? Hardship, difficulty, tribulation. 2 Timothy 3.10 Paul's talking to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. So he tells Timothy, you've seen all of this. You have witnessed some of it. You've heard of all of it. You understand what I've gone through. And then what's he say? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that's an interesting take on it, isn't it? And I think it's worthy of taking a look at, as we see this in the passage, to look at some of the things that he said, because it helps us understand our life a little bit, doesn't it? It can help us understand as we apply ourselves to ministry, there's going to be some difficulty and some friction, and that shouldn't be that, oh, the Lord must not want me to do it. Your first thought would be, well, that should go with faithful ministry, right? If I'm doing it like the Lord wants me to do it, then that's going to be how it is. Why? Because everyone who lives godly in Christ, they're a representative of the light, and it's invading a dark world. The world's fallen. The world is wicked, sinful. The world is unbelieving. The world is cursed. This world lies in the lap of the evil one. I got to witness to a couple the other day working at my home. And um, one of them said, do you, do you believe in demons? I go, well, and she knew I was a pastor. I said, of course. The Bible teaches us that it's the kingdom of darkness. She goes, well, it just seems like you know, some families have them. I said, well, 
I guess I would say this. The Bible says that apart from being redeemed, the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. Not just a few people. They do, they do what the wicked one wants them to do. They don't even realize they're under that control until the light comes in. So it's his temporary domain, right? It, it's his provisional kingdom. It's his chaos. He has authority for the short term. And we're here moving through, right? We're, we're here not to be at home in the world, but to be temporarily here to do what we're supposed to do. And if someone comes along, you know, proclaiming in this wicked kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing the light to bear on a fallen world, you know, using the truth to throw down every high tower that we looked at before, raised up against the knowledge of God, we would expect that this kind of ministry would be marked with some hardship, some persecution, some suffering. And the greater the impact of the ministry, the greater the consequent retaliation from the kingdom of darkness, right? Nothing apart from the hand of God, though, right? You're not like at the mercy somehow of the wicked one, apart from God allowing some difficulty to come into your life to really affirm that you're doing precisely what he wants you to do. And when we look at Paul in, in this Greek-Roman-Jewish society, so close to the crucifixion of Christ, and, and with so much hostility and resistance to the foundations of this ministry uh, and, and the mystery of the gospel that's coming out and being set up and the church is being established, you know, when Satan can read the scriptures and, and Christ has come now in the fullness of time and has risen from the grave and now death is working backwards, he's desperate. And so the closer we get to his return, it shouldn't surprise us that we'll have more resistance and more difficulty. And so that resistance to an established church is fierce in the kingdom of darkness, right? And, and so the more, the more suffering, the, the more Paul's credentials become clear. He's fulfilled the marks of the apostleship, and the false teachers in all their masquerade can't possibly hope to compete with that, see. They've established this this arbitrary standard, and then they compared themselves by the standard, and they live up to it. And so they've established this, this, uh, this it's a mirage of success. Paul says, listen, this is what it really looks like. This is what the credentials look like, see. And so this whole discussion here is really insane. You know, how is it that a man with the reputation of Paul, uh, the man with the character of Paul, uh, the man who has spent so long and so many months with the Corinthians, who, who led so many of them to Christ from idols and vain and hopeless ways of life, established this little church and then an island of paganism, and they knew him very well, and they knew his teaching very well, and, and they knew his character well, and they knew the patterns of his life well, and they knew how effective and his church planning had been and how powerful his letters were, and word had spread from church to church and place to place about the man. It wasn't as if he was a mystery to them, but here, here comes the false teachers who told some lies about Paul, and these people... Some people in the church who knew better believe the lies. And so the question is, why do people do that? Well, it's because of the subtleties of Satan's deception, see. Satan and those who are taken captive by him to do his will are, are wily and cunning and crafty and subtle, and it still goes on today. You know, I've had pastor friends around the country who spend years and years teaching and ministering and living out their life in front of people, and there's really no mystery about any of that. People have known him for years and years. And, and everything is an open book, and everything is known. It's a fishbowl. It's life. The character of his life, the ministry is clearly established. But someone can come along, subtly, deceptively, spread some lies. People buy them, and they change their viewpoint. And the pastor can find himself in this amazing position of, of having to try to defend in a conversation an accusation made against him that if measured against the years of ministry and life that's visible for everybody are nothing but absurd. But we see that happen all the time. And that's what Paul's saying through the whole beginning. This whole thing is insane. Why am I even doing this? Why, why is this 
being discussed. It's not as if you don't have enough information about me, see? And, and to even suggest on top of that, all that insanity, these people are servants of Christ is another kind of insanity, right? But, but for the sake of argument, I'll ask the question, are they servants of Christ and I far more? And their claim to be servants of Christ and apostles unraveled, see, as Paul began his, his comments. And he can say, I'm far more of a servant of Christ than they are. And how does he prove it? Verse 23. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. He proves he's far more of a servant with a suffering. And that list is not exhaustive. The book of Acts doesn't have all of those events. And these happen fairly early in his ministry. And we know more is going to happen later as Acts indicates some of them. Because when he gets to the point of writing the, to this, uh, this letter in Corinth, he's not done with his life. We know there's more things that are going to happen. Another shipwreck, we know for sure, where he was in the deep again. And Paul, a Jew, finds himself in good company, certainly as it relates to Jesus' prophecy and promise to his true disciples. But if you go back to the Old Testament, I mean, it shouldn't surprise us Paul's going through this. I mean, what did they do to Jeremiah? You know, and what did they do to the other prophets? I mean, they tried to silence him. They threw him in pits. What did they do to Isaiah? Well, we believe Manasseh sawed him in half. So it's not surprising to us, right? Effective ministry should be met with resistance. And we noted that, you know, but you wouldn't know that from, from, uh, from false teachers, right? And false teachers, it's all about God's blessing, God's favor, God's, God's giving me this, I have all this, you know, this is God's blessing on the ministry. Uh, an easy life, a, a, a cushy life. This is, this is how we measure it now, see. You know, if you think about the writing of 2 Corinthians, Paul had been in the ministry at this point about 22 years. So some 22 years in the ministry. And with just what we know about Paul from Acts, which isn't everything that happened to him, about every other year, as I told you this, at least, Paul had an experience of suffering that most people, market never experience. So every other year, Paul had an experience of suffering that most people never experience in 22 years, every other year, on average. And that's just at this point of his ministry, he's not done. And, and here's the remarkable thing. In all of that, Paul showed no evidence of being a physical wreck or suffering from anxiety attacks or burnout. Why is that? He wasn't doing it in his own power. His message was in a jar of clay, right? He was perfectly fine being weak and having some physical ailments because the power wasn't ever in him, and he didn't want anybody to think it was. So the power always came from the Lord. He always trusted the Lord. So having some hardships and, you know, that many suffering experiences— will leave some physical marks on your body. And he even says that later, doesn't he? I bear on my body the marks of Christ. And I think that speaks volumes about his spiritual, emotional, physical resilience, no matter what came along, no matter what, whatever abuse was hurled at him. Now look at verse 26. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, Dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor, verse 27, and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, oft without food and cold and exposure. And, and those words, as we come to a close, we went through all of those. That word hardship, that word is a word for difficulty from which there is no escape. 
the understanding there is that there are ministries that you do, and, and missionaries go through this a lot, where you endure a hardship, and there's not going to be any change in that hardship. That is part of your ministry. Paul says it's just part of it, you know, the hardship, the traveling, you know, dangers in the city. Obviously, we see a number of those places, don't we, where he goes into a city and a huge mob breaks out and they want to kill him. Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city from robbers. Paul had to travel a lot. We know even from uh, Parable of the Good Samaritan, it, it didn't take long for you to, you didn't have to travel very far to be waylaid by robbers and beaten and, and everything taken. So we went through all of this. And you go back and see that. Dangers on the sea among false brethren. That's probably the hardest one for them to take, right? People who say they're believers but then stab him in the back and, and try to, to undermine him. Many sleepless nights. We understand that's not the sleepless nights we looked at before where he's deliberately staying awake to pray. This is not able to sleep because he's cold or he's hungry or he's out somewhere laying on the ground or, or, or concerned about someone coming and robbing him. In hunger and in thirst, and the hunger there is not the same as we saw in chapter 4 where he did without food to fast. This is hunger because he didn't have anything. This is famine. So Paul is having all this difficulty in cold and exposure. Remember he said, bring, my, bring, bring the cloak with you and come before winter. Remember that? That helps us understand a little bit of that, doesn't it? Because Paul was cold and he was getting, the weather was changing and he needed something to cover himself and he didn't always have it. He didn't always have the money it took to buy it. He didn't have the money perhaps it took to get the food because the church wasn't supporting him and so he was kind of doing it on his own. You know, I'm not saying all this to kind of make us feel guilty. We live in a prosperous society. The Lord has blessed us. I'm not saying that you know, that's wrong, okay, we can't, we it's not a matter of peeling off layers of the onion until we get down to now God's finally pleased, right, it's a matter of wherever you are, we're doing with what we have faithfully and managing it, God's given us all things richly to enjoy, I'm not saying any of this to make us somehow misconstrue what I'm saying, okay, it's just this is his lot, he's perfectly content with it, and many ministry people around the world have similar lot as this right now, okay, so you know, just be faithful where you, the Lord's put you, and I say that as just kind of a disclaimer. I'm not trying to make you feel badly about anything, okay? This is just how Paul is giving his credentials. And this is what it looks like, okay? And so all these things really fly, again, in the face of prosperity gospel, as does the whole passage. In other words, if God's kingdom here on earth is where everyone's rich and full, Paul says, we haven't seen that. That isn't how my experience has been, and that's not the experience of many around the world. But here's a man who proved his character by his suffering and his endurance, and as we close today, just a few takeaways to think about. And this kind of catches you up to where we're going to pick up next time, and he's going to say, in spite of all those things, he has, he has concern for all the churches. That's where we're headed, okay? And we're going to see the marks of a true uh, minister, his concern for the churches. We're going to see that next week, Lord willing. But look at, and I'll just put them up for you. Here's some questions to ask. You know, what do I, and the question is, we read all of that, and we went through, of course, a, a large section of scripture, and we took more time with it as we went through the first time. But I want to catch you up to where we're going to be. And so the questions pop up. You know, here's a man who could say in Acts 20, verse 24, and, and I just want you to listen to this, and you can read it, because this really applies across the board. As you think about your own evaluation, where you are in your walk with the Lord, I do not consider my life as of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I know I'm going to have the squeeze put on me. I'm going to be in jail. I'm okay with that. 
My life isn't dearer to me than my ministry. Here's the question for you, beloved. Can, can you put anything in that sentence that's dearer to you than the ministry that God has given you? Because we can't just say, okay, that's just only Paul, okay? I mean, this is the general attitude. If you give up your life to find it, then that means your life was given up, right? And you've taken on the road that the Lord has set before you. So here's the question. Is there anything more dear to you than the ministry that God has given you? Something that would keep you from doing the ministry, carrying out the ministry God wants you to carry out. And that's, that's a valid question. How about Philippians 3.8? Again, we're just kind of skipping around because it's the general attitude Paul brought to us and we're supposed to follow his, him as he followed Christ, right? So he says this, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Then verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I've known suffering. I've had my things taken away. I'm okay with that because I have Christ. And losing those things hasn't hindered me from growing in Christ. Here's the question, beloved. Here's the question, okay? You want to know how we can look at this and kind of come away with, the, I think, the, the right heading? Is there a price you may have to pay that would be too great to gain Christ and grow in him? Is there something you're holding on to now that if it was stripped from you, that would also strip from you the desire to follow Christ, to put it the other way? I think that's a valid question if we understand what Christianity really is supposed to look like. How about Philippians 4.12? I know how to get along with humble means. Paul could say this. I also know how to live in prosperity. I, th I think all of us know the second one, right? We know how to get along if things are easy. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. 13, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, I know what it is to have nothing. I know what it is to miss meals and sleep. We just looked at that. I'm okay with all of that because I know the secret of every circumstance in which I find myself. So here's the question, and really two of them. Beloved, do you know the secret to living victoriously in whatever circumstance the Lord deems appropriate for you? That's a legitimate question, I think. And the second one, can you confidently say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me? And then I think the opposite statement, without him I can do nothing. So I'm not talking about, you know, misconstruing that verse somehow, saying what it's not saying. Paul's in the context saying I can live with nothing. And I know how to live with what I need. And... Beloved, can you confidently say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and without him I can do nothing? Is that a good balance for your life at whatever level you are, whatever education you are, whatever job you're looking for, or perhaps have? Are, are, you, are you good with that? Because th those questions, beloved, those are legitimate questions for every believer. It's not some second-tier Christianity that not everybody gets to. This is what the Lord expects from everyone. For we were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Right? I mean, you belong to him. If you've come to faith in him, you belong to him. These are the marks of a godly leader. These are marks of a faithful believer. Walking the hard road is part and parcel of following Jesus. In the world, you're going to have trouble. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Among all the things we learn from Paul through these two letters, and we'll learn some more next week, Lord willing, we'll learn this humble acceptance of these truths, embracing them as the affirmation of God's direction and affirmation in the ministry that he's been given. I think you can see that. 
Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. Lord, I thank you today for opportunity to be in your word. Such a blessing to be together with uh, like-minded folk who love you and desire to walk in godly uh, ways before the world, to be in the word every day. And Lord, thank you for the ministries that they have in the circum and the circles that they walk in. I pray that you'll strengthen them for that journey. I pray that you'll help them to be steeled up against uh, resistance to faithfulness, that they'll be able to handle your word in such a way that you can use them to throw down everything raised up against the knowledge of Christ as you give them utterance. I pray the gospel will be quick on their lips, ready to be given, recognize spiritual issues, recognize that even resistance and difficulty and all of that are ways that the Lord is help, uh, you are helping us grow. You're maturing us and sanctifying us through difficult situations and people. So grateful, Lord, that um, you take interest in us, that the work you've begun, you'll finish. Thank you that we can see this wonderful example in the Apostle Paul and then understand how we can begin to emulate this kind of life. And Lord, perhaps you don't have hardship like Paul has and had in, in the docket for us. So we learn how to live with what we have and use it in such a way that we won't be ashamed when we're in glory. And Father, if you do have a difficult time ahead of us, Lord, I pray that we, when the squeeze is put on us, the wine of faithfulness, the wine of contentment, the wine of growth and completion will be what's squeezed out and not the vinegar of why me and I've done so much, and why do I have to go through this, Father? Thank you for the blessing of the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the ministry that's outside these doors, and I pray that you'll take us to it. I love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself, and to take the gospel to every creature. Very simple in the midst of providing for the needs of our family and living in this world as a temporary resident. We have a few jobs to do. Help us to do them. I pray all of us in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.